Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, December 5th through Tuesday the 10th feature guest conductor John Storgard and violinist Ray Chen. The program includes Blue Cathedral by Jennifer Higdon, Henrik Wieniawski's Violin Concerto No. 1, and after intermission, Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 4. And here are words by Richard Roda, guest annotator, on the Wieniawski Violin Concerto No. 1, a work lasting about 28 minutes. Henrik Wieniawski was among the most remarkable violinist composers of the 19th century. His father was a prosperous physician in Lublin, Poland, some 100 miles southeast of Warsaw, and his mother was an excellent pianist whose brother, Edward Wolff, was a friend and imitator of Chopin and one of the most esteemed keyboard artists and teachers in Paris. Hendrik's extraordinary talent on the violin was discovered very early, and Wolff convinced his sister to bring her son to Paris for training at the Paris Conservatory. He entered the school at the age of eight and graduated three years later with a first prize in violin, an accomplishment unprecedented in the conservatory's history for one so young. After a concert in Paris in January 1848, Wieniawski traveled to St. Petersburg, where his performances won him praise from Henri Vuitton, the imperial court violinist, and an excellent Guarneri violin from Emperor Nicholas I. After successful appearances in Finland, the Baltic provinces, and Warsaw, he returned to the Paris Conservatory in 1849 for further training in composition, graduating the following year in that discipline again with a first prize. After his apprentice years, Wieniawski spent the rest of his life as a touring virtuoso and teacher. Between 1851 and 53, he played extensively in Russia with his younger brother, Josef, an accomplished pianist and composer, and published the first of his original compositions, including a violin sonata and several pieces based on Polish dances. He created a considerable stir among German music lovers when he introduced his first violin concerto at the Leipzig Gewandhaus in November 1853 and appeared extensively thereafter throughout Europe and Britain. He married the Englishwoman Isabella Hampton in 1860. Later that year, Anton Rubinstein invited him to return to St. Petersburg, and soon he was appointed to the faculty of the new St. Petersburg Conservatory. For the next dozen years, Wieniawski was a potent influence in Russian music, serving as a teacher at the conservatory, solo violinist to the Tsar, principal violinist of both the orchestra and string quartet of the Russian Musical Society, and composer of numerous violin works, most notably the second violin concerto of 1862. In 1872, he made an exhausting tour of the United States with Rubinstein in an effort to cover the cost of his gambling debts and bad investments. Wieniawski remained in the country until 1874, but the strain of a second tour, which took him as far as California, endangered his health without significantly improving his financial situation. On returning to Europe, he taught for two years at the Brussels Conservatory as the successor to Vuitton, and then resumed his grueling concert tours throughout Germany, France, and Russia, despite health seriously deteriorated by a heart condition. 
He collapsed during a performance in Berlin in November 1878, and his friend and colleague Josef Joachim, who was in the audience, took up his violin and finished the program. Though his health was nearly shattered, financial need forced Vinyovsky to continue playing, and he returned again to Russia. By November 1879, he had to be admitted to hospital in Moscow. Three months later, broken in body and penniless, he was taken into the Moscow home of Nadia von Meck, who had already won an important place in musical history as Tchaikovsky's patroness. He died there on March 31, 1880, four months shy of his 45th birthday. Eleven days before Vinyovsky passed away, Tchaikovsky wrote to Madame von Meck, In him we shall lose an incomparable violinist and a gifted composer. Vinyovsky was one of the most accomplished musical artists of the mid-19th century. Anton Rubinstein called him, without a doubt, the greatest violinist of his time. He was known for the richness of his tone, the perfection of his technique, and the fiery Slavic temperament that electrified his playing. The two concertos are the most important of his four dozen compositions, but several of his smaller pieces are familiar items in the violin literature, Souvenir of Moscow on Russian themes and Legend, both for violin and orchestra, the Russian Carnival for violin and piano, two collections of solo etudes, and numerous mazurkas, polonaises, and other works, including the reminiscences of San Francisco. Vinyovsky's first violin concerto, dedicated to King Friedrich Wilhelm IV of Prussia, is an unabashed showpiece for violin. The opening movement's thematic material is contained in the orchestral introduction, an ominous dotted rhythm main theme initiated by the clarinet and a heroic major mode melody entrusted to the cellos. The violin introduces itself in a wide-ranging restatement of the main theme before undertaking a dazzling elaboration of the thematic material. The second theme serves as a serene respite for the soloist that leads to one of the most fiendishly difficult passages of multiple stops in the violin repertory. The middle of the movement is occupied by a rather stiff orchestral development of the main theme, but the soloist returns with a flourish in a brilliant cadenza before once again negotiating the second theme and the multiple-stop passage to round out the opening allegro. The brief and sweet second movement, marked pregiera, prayer, is touching in its lyricism and simplicity. The finale is a scintillating rondo based on an exhilarating theme of gypsy ancestry. Notes by guest annotator Richard Rota on the Vinyovsky Violin Concerto No. 1. And now on to Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 4 in F minor, a work lasting about 44 minutes. Tchaikovsky was at work on his fourth symphony when he received a letter from Antonina Milyokova, claiming to be a former student of his and declaring that she was madly in love with him. Tchaikovsky had just read Pushkin's Eugene Onegin, hoping to find an opera subject, and he saw fateful parallels between Antonina and Pushkin's heroine Tatyana. Perhaps Tchaikovsky confused art and life. In any event, the consequences were dire. It's hard to say which letter provoked the stronger response from Tchaikovsky, the despairing letter Tatyana writes to the cold-hearted Onegin, or the one he himself received from Antonina 
threatening suicide. The first inspired one of the great scenes in opera. The latter precipitated a painful and disastrous marriage. We have since learned enough about Tchaikovsky and about the agony of repressed homosexuality to understand why he would choose to marry a woman he didn't even know as a kind of cover. Less than a year earlier, Tchaikovsky had begun an extraordinary relationship conducted exclusively by correspondence with Nadezhda von Meck, and he delighted in the combination of intellectual intimacy and physical distance. On June 1, 1877, Tchaikovsky stopped work on the first three movements of the symphony and visited Antonina Mulyakova for the first time. A day or two later, he proposed. He didn't tell Nazija Fonek of his plans until three days before the wedding. In that letter, he confessed that he had lived 37 years with an innate aversion to marriage. In a day or two, my marriage will take place, he wrote in closing. What will happen after that, I do not know. Tchaikovsky quickly learned that, in addition to the obvious strain of living with someone to whom he felt profound physical aversion, he would grow to disdain Antonina, particularly after the stunning discovery that she knew not one note of music. My heart is full, he wrote to von Neck. It thirsts to pour itself out in music. It was music that kept him going. When he was able to escape temporarily to Kamenka, he found solace in his fourth symphony and by working intermittently on Eugene Onegin. He returned to Moscow in late September, barely in time to begin the fall term at the conservatory, and discovered, surely without surprise, that he could maintain the façade no longer. Many years later, he confessed that he waded into the Moscow River, hoping to contract a fatal chill, and stood with the icy water up to his waist until he could literally stand no more. He then fled to St. Petersburg, where a psychiatrist prescribed a complete change of scenery and a permanent separation from Antonina. Nikolai Rubinstein and Tchaikovsky's brother Anatoly rushed to Moscow to tell Antonina. She listened calmly and served them tea. Tchaikovsky's marriage lasted less than three months. On October 13th, Anatoly took Tchaikovsky to Switzerland and then on to Paris and Italy. Tchaikovsky asked that the unfinished manuscript of the Fourth Symphony be sent from Moscow, and he completed the scoring in January 1878. He finished Eugene Onegin the following month. That March, he sketched the violin concerto in just 11 days. When he returned to Russia in late April, his problems with Antonina were still unresolved. She first accepted and then rejected the divorce papers and later extracted her final revenge by moving into the apartment above his. But the worst year of his life was over. The temptation to read a program into Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony is as old as the work itself. Since Nadezhda von Meck allowed Tchaikovsky to dedicate the symphony to her without mentioning her name and was contributing generously to support his career, she demanded to know what the work was about. Tchaikovsky's response, often quoted, is a detailed account filled with emotional thoughts and empty phrases, words written after the fact to satisfy an indispensable patron. When Tchaikovsky mentions fate, however, his words ring true. This was a subject that had haunted him since 1876 when he saw Carmen and was struck by the death of the two principals who, through fate, Fatum, ultimately reached the peak of their suffering and their inescapable end. 
He wrote to Nadezhda von Neck, The introduction is the seed of the whole symphony, undoubtedly the main idea. This is fate, that fatal force which prevents the impulse to happiness from attaining its goal, which jealously ensures that peace and happiness shall not be complete and unclouded, which hangs above your head like the sword of Damocles and unwaveringly, constantly poisons the soul. Indeed, the icy blast from the horns that opens this symphony returns repeatedly in the first movement and once in the finale, each time wiping out everything in its path. It's like the celebrated fate motif from Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, the one the composer himself compared to fate knocking at the door, except that it's more of a disruption than a compositional device. Later, Tchaikovsky wrote to the composer Sergei Taniev, a former student, of course, my symphony is programmatic, but this program is such that it cannot be formulated in words. That would excite ridicule and appear comic. Ought not a symphony that is the most lyrical of all forms to be such a work? Should it not express everything for which there are no words, but which the soul wishes to express and which requires to be expressed? Please do not think that I aspire to paint before you a depth and grandeur of thought that cannot be easily understood in words. I was not trying to express any new thought. In essence, my symphony imitates Beethoven's fifth. That is, I was not imitating its musical thoughts, but its fundamental idea. Do you think there is a program in the fifth symphony? Not only is there a program, but in this instance there cannot be any question about its efforts to express itself. My symphony rests upon a foundation that is nearly the same, and if you haven't understood me, it follows only that I am not a Beethoven, a fact which I have never doubted. Taniev was perhaps the first to question the preponderance of what he called ballet music in the symphony. In fact, the lilting main theme of the opening movement marked in movimento di valse, and the whole of the two inner movements, the slow pas de deux with its mournful oboe solo, and the brilliant and playful pizzicato scherzo, remind us that the best of Tchaikovsky's ballet scores are symphonic in scope and tone. Tchaikovsky was angered by the comment and asked Taniev if he considered as ballet music every cheerful tune that has a dance rhythm. If that's the case, he concluded, you must also be unable to reconcile yourself to the majority of Beethoven's symphonies in which you encounter such things at every turn. The finale is more complex emotionally and musically, swinging from the dark emotions of the first movement to a more festive mood. If you cannot discover reasons for happiness in yourself, Tchaikovsky wrote to Madame von Meck, look at others, get out among the people, look at what a good time they have simply surrendering themselves to joy. There is one final intrusion of the fateful horns from the symphony's opening, but this time the music quickly recovers, rousing itself to a defiantly triumphant and heroic Beethovenian ending in intention, if not in substance. Program notes by Philip Husher on Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 4. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.